0: All right, welcome everybody to. Uh, I think this is the fourth time we've done a midweek fellowship. And so if you are new to this, um, we uh, do six to eight week blocks. Uh, and so we're starting tonight and we'll go all the way through the end of March. This particular block is going to be on tough questions, things that you have submitted to us. And so tonight we're going to be answering a couple of questions. But let me mention that if you're not used to, um, if you haven't been to these before, um, Wayne has done the first three blocks that we did last year in 2013 and you can find all of that content on the internet um, on our on not just the, the, you know our web page like our, our not just the we you know you, you can look for it on our page don't just go searching out there in the world wide web but you can find it on our web page um, under the resources and in particular, I would commend to you the last one we did uh, that Wayne did on church history, which was just fascinating. All the notes, audio, video is, um, is there for you to look at and, um, and enjoy if you missed it. All right, did everybody get, um, Byron, don't go anywhere while you're still there. Did anybody get an outline? If you didn't get an outline, you'll definitely want one of these. Raise your hand. And Byron Braccato, um, one of my favorite Italian-Americans, will uh, get these back for you. And so, Rooster's maybe going to get some more, because Byron, are you, are you getting some for people, Byron, or are you just going back to your seat? What's going on? Okay, all right. <laughs> I didn't really feel like you were... Okay, gotcha. All right. All right. Well, um, we're going to work through this outline, and um, uh, tonight, we're going to handle two questions. Question number one is, what happens to those who die and have never heard the gospel? And a somewhat related question is, what happens to those who die in infancy? Uh, do, do babies who die in infancy go to heaven? And I would include in that second question also people that are mentally incapacitated or just incapable of uh, exercising faith. So two questions that um, are, are really challenging um, the first one in particular that is oftentimes an objection to Christianity, and that is often packed full of emotion. Um, And so, you know, I was thinking today as I was preparing for this and these past few days thinking about this evening, and when you're preparing for something like this, it can be kind of sort of an academic exercise. You know, you want to make sure you have all the bases covered and all the verses that apply to a particular question. And every now and again, you just kind of have to shake yourself and, and, and remind yourself that, you know, ultimately we're, we're talking about people and we're talking about souls. You know, we're not, this isn't just like, this isn't a seventh grade science experiment. Like we're not adding baking soda to vinegar and seeing what happens, you know, like, oh, wow. When you ask this question and, you know, you put this in the Bible, oh, wow, that's a great reaction. And there's an answer. I mean, this is like, this is weighty stuff. Um. Robert Murray McShane, uh, some of you may be familiar with his writings back in the 1800s, a British and Scottish pastor, had a friend named Andrew Bonar who was also a pastor. And he asked his friend Andrew, um, he asked him what he preached on the previous Sunday. And Andrew Bonar said, "Uh, I preached on hell, just kind of sort of flippantly. And Robert Murray McShane looked at him. Uh, intently and he said, I hope you preached on it with tears. And so as we look at eternal destiny and we look at just the fate of millions and millions of people, um, we we do want to do it with with a certain humility and and brokenheartedness um, and and, uh, and earnestness for the cause of evangelism. So in just a moment, I'm going to get into it, but before we do that, let me give away a couple books. Uh, A book, a wonderful book. None of these directly apply to the question tonight, but they are missions and evangelism themed, and I thought they'd be helpful for people. These are all books that we sell in the resource room, but we're giving them away tonight free to you. Just these, not all the books in the resource room. This is called Finish the Mission Bringing the Gospel to the Unreached and Unengaged. It's edited by John Piper. And David Mathis compilation of a bunch of different articles about missions. is anybody interested in taking this and reading it? Anybody at all? Angie Riley. Um, you can take that read it. another book that 's written by uh, a pastor in washington d c that if you 've been around here at Cross Point, you know how influential he is on us as a staff uh, and on me as a pastor his name's mark dever he 's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Um, one of the things that marks his ministry is just uh, a really winsome um, and, and uh, just a great, uh, his, his personal life is marked by personal evangelism, as is many in his congregation. He's written a book called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, just helping the every, everyday ordinary person just be more equipped to share the gospel with their neighbors and acquaintances. Short little book, easy to read. In the back there, I can't see who that is, way in the back. Is that Wes? Yeah, Wes, come on back. You're in the shadows, brother. Read that, enjoy it. And then a big one, um, which is not a book that you read all the way through, but a book that is really a prayer guide. It's called Operation World, the definitive prayer guide to every nation. Springer Cain, who... Um, is on our staff and oversees our missions, endeavors, just both locally and abroad, recommends this book very, very highly, as does our Barnabas team. And it's it's basically got information on all the unreached people groups in the world that we're going to be, you know, thinking about what their destiny is outside of Christ. And so this would be a wonderful prayer guide for you to take and just kind of keep as a lifetime resource. Is that Amy Ward right there? All right. Come on up. Come on up. Amy take that and pray. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, well, let's get into the outline. Question number one, what happens to those who die and have never heard the gospel? Well, before we answer that question outright, let's do some backdrop. There's some preliminary questions that we need to ask before that. So um, let's go to the, uh, the the letter A there or I'm sorry, Roman numeral 1 there, what the Bible teaches about sin. Let's kind of develop a sort of theology about what the Bible teaches about sin in general. The first thing it teaches is that it's universal. I think probably many of you in this room could quote this verse off the top of your head. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that all means, means all of us, all types of people, every individual. Ephesians 2, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. One of the most succinct uh, explanations of the gospel. In fact, I think Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, are verses that really you should memorize, you should be very familiar with. I think it's one of the, the, the most full and robust passages in the Bible about what the gospel is. And at the beginning of that, Paul writes this about the nature of the universality of all of us being sinners. He says in Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you. We're dead in your trespasses and sins. So we're thinking, okay, good. Maybe he's just talking about this sorry lot of people called the Ephesians, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So he's not just talking about the Ephesians there, this particular group of people. He's talking about all mankind is by nature sinners. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. In fact, this Sunday when we get into Genesis 3, we're going to look at the doctrine of sin and what sin has done to us. And it has, it has killed us spiritually. It's separated us from God. It's done more than just neutralize humanity and make us sort of less than optimal. It has... It has made us, by nature and by choice, objects of God's wrath. So sin is universal. Every human being is a sinner, save Jesus, who's the perfect God-man. Let her be there. The consequences of this sin. Again, probably a verse that many of you have memorized. The consequences of sin are death and eternal separation from God. So Romans 6, 23 says that the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when the Bible speaks about the consequences of death, sin, the consequences of sin being death, we don't have time to get into it tonight, but death, when a person dies or they're separated from God, that is, that is it's spiritual death. But it doesn't stop um, at physical death. The Bible seems to be very clear that spiritual death is an eternal reality. It is to be separated from God forever. When we went through the Gospel of Mark a couple um, months ago, I guess back in mid-2013, we looked at Mark chapter 9, Jesus' words on hell, where he says it's a place where where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. So there's something much greater than physical death. Remember in the Gospels where Jesus says, don't fear the person that can kill your body. Fear the one that can kill your body and send your soul to hell. And so death is not, physical death is not the final aspect of death. Death is separation from God forever to stay in our sins. That's what the consequences of sin is. And then letter C there, a question that I think often is legitimately asked is okay, Brad. I get that we're all sinners, um, and I get that sin is uh, it, the consequences of sin is death. But is all sin really that bad and worthy of God's judgment? Because you know, when I think of sinners, I can I, I can classify the terrorist, or I can classify the um, the you know the person who really harms somebody else in a malicious sort of way. Did you see the front page of the Columbus Ledger a day or two ago about these three juveniles that, or these three young men that set this woman on fire and abused her and just left her for dead. I mean, you know, it's easy for us to compartmentalize, okay, those are sinners, they're sort of obviously in, in you know, standing in judgment. But the Bible speaks about, remember what Paul said, we're all objects of wrath in, in and of ourselves apart from Christ. To help you kind of understand this, a helpful analogy, and, and we've mentioned here before, is that when you think of sin and the consequences of sin, Sin derives its, its weight and its gravity not by sort of the horizontal plane of humanity upon how we commit sins against another, but sin derives its gravity and the weight of the punishment that it rightly deserves because of the dignity of the one against whom it's committed. So here's an analogy that we've used before. Mike, down here, young lieutenant on the front row here. Um been coming across point for a while let's just say sometime this evening when i was speaking mike got up in the middle of my talk and came and slapped me right in the middle right in the right across the face well well that would be terribly awkward <laughs> and i mean i don't know mike i love you but i mean i might i might slap you back i mean <laughs> um, and if it escalated i venture to say mark williams would come over and just kind of be in a good Samaritan would stop it's like what, what are you guys doing like what this is awkward stop it But that would basically be it, other than some kind of strange feelings between me and Mike. That would be the only consequences, right, of that. But if this was medieval England, right, and the king of the country or the kingdom was here, you know, appearing before us, you know, the plebs of his kingdom, and Mike were to come up as a plebe in the kingdom of, you know, King Arthur, and we're to break through the knights of the round table, and we're to slap King Arthur across the face. (laughs) Off with your head, young plebe. The consequences are higher, right? Why? Because of the dignity and the value and the worth of the person against whom the sin was committed. Friends, on an infinitely, infinitely grander scale. Our sin, whether it's something horrible in public or whether it's just our internal righteousness and our own idolatry and our own coveting, making gods out of our own work, is worthy of eternal separation because God is infinitely holy. See, he's not like a medieval king. His infinite, His holiness and his goodness and his righteousness goes on forever. And there is no atoning for a sin against God who is altogether lovely and beautiful so yes all sin really is that bad is some sin worse than others well I, yeah in, in a sense I don't mean to flatten the world morally I mean it's better to s- slap your friend than it is to you know uh, bomb a building but at the end of the day all sin is worthy of God's just and right judgment so that's what the Bible teaches about sin. There's much more we can say about that, and there's much more that we will say about that this Sunday. What does the Bible teach about salvation? Roman numeral number two, there. Letter A. Clearly, it comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. So, John chapter three. I'd recommend reading that whole chapter if you've never done that. A beautiful conversation between Jesus and this man named Nicodemus who came to him at night, and in John chapter 3, verse 16, 17, and 18. The first verse there being maybe the most famous verse in the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, verse 18, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God of the only Son of God. So right there, Jesus divides humanity. Not between white people, and black people, and brown people, or between East Coasters, and West Coasters, and Americans, and non-Americans, or Auburn fans, and Alabama fans, or whatever. You know, Mike and Ed's, or countries. I mean, whatever whatever the thing is, that sort of divides you, Jesus divides humanity, between those who believe, and trust in Him, and are not condemned, and those who do not believe in Him, and are condemned. And then at the end of that, third chapter in verse 36, John, the, John the, the, the disciple John writes in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So that just right wrath for the sin that every person is committed by nature and by choice remains on them outside of Christ. Jesus says in John fourteen six, verse 6, Another very familiar verse, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We see this same theology preached by the apostles after the day of Pentecost. Jesus has died, resurrected, ascended, has commissioned his church to take the gospel into all the world and we see one of the first Christian messages preached, one of the first witnesses of the apostles there Peter and John, there before the council in acts four twelve they stand and boldly proclaim there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then we see in Romans, Paul developing this argument further in Romans chapter 5, verses 12-21. through 21. I won't take the time to read it, but I, I referred actually to it this last Sunday, that, that uh, Paul is basing his logic of the justification that comes to people when they trust in Christ, coming through Christ, Based on the fact that sin has come to all of us through Adam. And so he's saying that Adam is a real person. And that because of one man, Adam, sin came into the human race. And now because of one man and only one man, Jesus, justification, salvation comes to the whole race. And so Paul is clearly identifying Christ as the only way that redemption comes. And then in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, this beautiful verse. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So clearly there we see that salvation comes only through faith in Christ. I won't take the time to read the Titus 3 verse, but another clear explanation of the fact that salvation only comes through Jesus. That leads us to a little a secondary question that some of you may be wondering about, which is letter B there. How were people saved in the Old Testament before Christ? Because we've, we've been talking about You know, all these verses that I've read have been in the New Testament after Christ. Just a a, a helpful um, thing for you to think about and understand would be that how were people saved in the Old Testament before Christ? Well, I think the clear biblical answer is that they too were saved by and through Jesus. So let's look at Romans chapter 4. It will be on the screen. And this is Paul talking about Abraham. Romans 4 verse 1. What then shall we say? the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Adam lived before the giving of the law. He lived, you know, before the Ten Commandments came. And Abraham trusted in God's promise. And what saved Abraham was his faith. So Abraham is saved by faith. And we see the same about Moses. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter. And, 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 and now the writer of Hebrews is going to whittle it down that the faith that these Old Testament saints had wasn't just kind of a nebulous sort of faith, but it was actually faith in seed form in Christ. So listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 about Moses who lived before Jesus in the Old Testament, way before Jesus. Moses eleven, uh, Hebrews 11 verse 24. By faith Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So remember, Moses left the comfort of the Pharaoh's household to obey God and to be the deliverer of his people. Verse 26, listen to this. This is Moses, thousands of years before Christ. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So this New Testament writer of Hebrews is interpreting Moses' faith, and really I think he's making a statement about all of the Old Testament saints' faith, that it was faith ultimately, even if they didn't fully realize it, it was faith in the gospel, the good news, as much as they knew it at that time, and ultimately Christ. Here's a helpful quote to kind of synthesize that for us by this Australian dude with an awesome accent. His name is Graham Goldsworthy. He's written a real helpful book called The Gospel and Kingdom. and He has a very helpful um, little quote in his book about this. About, you know, these Old Testament saints really ultimately having trusted in Christ, even though they didn't fully realize it. From man's point of view, we see the scriptures unfold a step-by-step process until the gospel is reached as the goal. But from God's point of view, we know that the coming of Christ to live and to die for sinners was the predetermined factor even before God made the world. Friends, that's important. Like, we're going to read Genesis 3 this week. It did not shock the Trinity, right? Adam and Eve didn't absolutely mess it up, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are going, oh, snap! Like, what do we do now? Jesus, let's come up with something. The Bible says at the end in Revelation that Jesus was slain before the foundations of the earth. In Ephesians 1, it says that God purposed before time to bring a people to himself. So back to to Goldsworthy's quote, we must not think of God trying first one plan and then another until he came up with the perfect way of salvation. The gospel was preordained so that at the exact and perfect time, God sent forth his son into the world. In the meantime, back to the Old Testament saints now, until that perfect fullness of time should be reached, God graciously provided a progressive revelation of the Christ event. So everything in the Old Testament, the law, the law, the sacrifices, the tabernacle. It's not just strange things that God is having his people do to like, ha, 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 let's see if they can follow this. All of these things prefigure and point towards Jesus. Colossians says that they're shadows of the substance that is Christ. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. In fact, Jesus in Luke 24, after the resurrection, remember he comes back and meets his disciples on the walk to Emmaus, and it says, starting with Moses, which is Genesis, the, the first five books, he explains everything of the scriptures concerning himself. Can you imagine that sermon? Whoa, Jesus unpacks the whole Old Testament and shows you how it all points to him. I mean, those guys' minds were blown. So these prefigurements of the gospel had two purposes. First, this progressive revelation led man gently to the full light of truth. Secondly, it provided the means whereby the Old Testament believer embraced the gospel before it was fully revealed. The Old Testament believer who believed the promises of God concerning the shadow was thus enabled to grasp the reality. It was by Christ that the saints of Israel were saved. For such is the unity of the successive stages of revelation that by embracing the shadow, the believer in the Old Testament he's speaking of there embraced the reality. Only in this way can we account for the unity expressions of the New Testament, which speak of the Old Testament believers as hearing the gospel, seeing Christ, or hoping for a heavenly kingdom like we just read about Moses. So do you see in seed form, Moses and Abraham and the other Old Testament saints are, gra- are standing under the shadow of God's promises, believing it. And that is in that seed form at that time, the gospel. So the Old Testament saints were saved as well. So all people are saved only through Christ. Which then brings us to, I think, the most important verse on this particular question of what happens to those who die outside of Christ. What is their fate? And that's Romans 1, verse 18 through 25. Let's go to that, Roman numeral number 3 there. Romans 1, super, super, super important passage on this. Super important chapter on, on just sin and human nature. In Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul is building the argument that all humanity stands condemned. In the first chapter and a half, he's making the argument that all the Gentiles, all the pagans, stand condemned because they have disobeyed God. And then midway through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he's going to make the argument that all the Jews are condemned because they've disobeyed the law that God directly gave to them through Moses. Right? So everybody, everybody Jews and Gentiles, there was no other types of people. That covers everybody, Jews and Gentiles. He's making the argument that all of us stand by nature under God's just judgment. Verse 18 of chapter 1, listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So he's speaking now about the Gentiles, not Jews, just Gentiles, everybody else. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. A stinging indictment of all humanity. So three points, three truths from Romans 1, 18 through 25. One, all people have knowledge of God. All people have a knowledge of God. Verse 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So he's talking about this group of people called the Gentiles, which is everybody else other than the Jews. And we know the Jews knew him because he directly and specially revealed himself to them. So he's talking about the other 99% of humanity, and he's saying all of them have a knowledge of God through the created order that God has revealed himself. Second truth from Romans 1. All people reject true knowledge of God. Verse 19, it says that God has shown it to them, and they... Uh, In verse 18, they suppress the truth. We have all rejected God. So he makes that argument about what the Jews have done of rejecting his law, but all Gentiles, I venture to say most people in this room, the vast majority of the population of the earth are Gentiles. All people reject true knowledge of God. Which leads us to truth number three. There are no, and I left this blank, so you have to fill it in, There are therefore no innocent people in the world. There's no innocent people. That's the clear argument of all that we've been reading. Remember from Ephesians and Romans 3 all have sinned. We're by nature children of wrath. Paul's argument here in Romans 1 that we are all without excuse. I don't have this, I didn't have the guys get this verse ready, but if you flip. Uh, to Romans chapter 3, then he culminates this argument of Jew and Gentile together. And he says that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands in verse 11 of Romans 3. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then down to verse 19. And he says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world World may be held accountable to God. A clear implication of what Paul is clearly laying out here is that there are no innocent people in the world. And so the Bible has backed us into a corner. And that brings us to Roman numeral 4 their answer and implications. I think the clear answer of what happens to those who die outside of Christ is that unless they hear the gospel and repent of the gospel and trust in Jesus, they perish and stand rightly and justly condemned forever. Let's acknowledge our bias because how is this question usually phrased? What about the innocent guy on the island? Right? What about the innocent guy on the island? Okay. What about him, Brad? What about the innocent guy on the island and he dies? Well, You know what? You're right. I may shock you here, but the, if there's an innocent guy on an island somewhere in the remote Pacific and he never hears the gospel and he dies, that innocent man will go straight to heaven. Straight to heaven. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 straight to heaven the only problem is he does not exist remember what we just said there are no innocent people see we rig the question so that it tilts towards us and against god don't we That's the way, that's the way, so when you answer that question, certainly maybe you've been trying to be a witness for Christ in you, and that's like the question, I'm going to get him on this one, and notice, before you just let yourself kind of get backed up and get in the defensive, that the question is rigged against God, and for humanity, as if God is on the stand, and we're in the jury deciding God's fate on this matter, and that's why you have to go back, and do some theology about what sin has done and about where humanity stands before we can even rightly, humbly approach this question. So this, I think, brings up a couple very important implications and then we'll pause before we get into the next question for any questions that you may have. Just a a couple things about our faulty understanding. Let's just go for a second with the premise that the innocent man on the island in the Pacific, um, is if he has never heard the gospel, let's just go with the premise that if he dies, having never heard the gospel, that he would go to heaven. If that were the case, what is the absolute worst thing that we could do for that guy? Share the gospel with him. Right? Share the gospel. Yeah. Because he's... We, we then are making it possible for him to reject it. I remember several years ago, David Platt, I'm sure many of you have heard of him, a pastor that we all respect in Birmingham, Brook Hills. and I heard him talking about this in some chapel message that I was watching, and he said, he said if, 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 if this were the case, that this innocent person existed and he could be saved by ignorance, then what we should do is that we should go to that guy on that remote Pacific island and say, hey, has anybody told you about Jesus? And if he says, no, I don't know, well, if anybody does, stick your fingers in your ear, start shouting and run away. Do you see the folly of that logic? It completely undermines the whole mission of God in the scriptures to send a people to proclaim the saving news of Jesus Christ. And that's not Paul's logic in Romans 10 either where Paul says that how will they hear unless somebody has sent them. Romans chapter 10 verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Can you feel the passion in Paul's words? The reason he's so passionate about this, the reason he's saying how, 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 is because if they don't hear, they perish. God has deemed that his glory is displayed most prominently by using his people as the means by which he brings those lost sinners to repentance. So a a quick quote from Spurgeon before we pause and um, handle any questions that you may have attached to that. I love this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let not one person go there unwarned and unprayed for. See, to see the implications for us as a local church, man—that's why we like. That's why we can't play tiddlywinks and argue over stupid stuff, right? That's why we as Christians have to know the gospel because how are people saved? Forget the guy on the island, the guy in the cubicle next to you. How are people saved? They're saved by people communicating the gospel to them. But if a bunch of selfish, self-absorbed American Christians only care about their little comfort and they don't share the gospel and we don't have a burden for souls, then, 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 then we don't even have a right to ask this question, do we? That's why we have to know the gospel. And that's why we as a church have to be about sending missionaries not just to our neighbors, but to the nations. That's why we want to be radically generous for the cause of missions. That's why we don't want to build stupid stuff like rock climbing walls and little cafes with Starbucks machines and all this goofy stuff where we spend money on ourselves when we can send money away to people like Jeremy and Samantha Orlich who are going to the other side of the world to live in a town where there are only about four Christians there and all of them are american missionaries you see you see the urgency of the task and the the great work that god has given us to do as a local church and so we we like we started off with need to as robert murray mcchain asked his friend andrew bonar are you thinking about these things with tears in your eyes Those that die outside of Christ, having never heard of him, are not innocent. They are guilty like all mankind. And they need to hear the gospel. And that's why we as a church need to be about the proclamation of the gospel. Any questions on that before we move on to the next question? Paul will run around with a microphone so we can get your audio. Anybody have any questions about that at all? Yeah, David. Just for uh, regards to, like, original sin, yeah. and this, I don't want to stem off, but mm-hmm. whenever I've had this conversation with somebody, they're like, it's not, well, it's not my fault that yeah. I sinned. So, I mean, I know what the Bible says about mm-hmm. that, and it, <clears throat> you yeah. know, Paul turns around yeah. in the inspiration and goes, who are you? To yeah. question God and say, yeah. why do you make me this way? But how yeah. do we respond in a real-life situation with yeah. You know, the, the guy next to the cubicle who says, well, if, you, if he made me this way, that's his fault, and he'll have to figure it out. Yeah, well, I want to say to that person that, yeah, um, the, the culpability for sin in the Scriptures is never placed on God. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this Sunday. Um, so, so Jesus says in John chapter 5, he says, you know, you search the Scriptures thinking that in them you will find eternal life, but you refuse to come to me. And he says to the Jews in Matthew 23, I think it's verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, I would want to gather you up, but you would not. And so I think it's important for us to realize that, again, God is not on the dock. We can't say, Oh, God, you made me like this. But I would say to that person is I'd want to turn it to what God has done. He has provided for you. He says, Come unto me. He says, repent of your sins. He has provided a way for you to trust in Christ. And so I would want to quickly move the conversation from culpability for sin, which is clearly squared at humanity, towards the provision for sin, which is Christ, and, and try and encourage that person to. But yeah, great question. Great question. Anything else? Jay, in the back. This may be maybe a couple tears down from what we've been talking about. But I've been curious to hear from you um, the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Mm. Um, you know, Jesus talks about the giving of the Spirit once He leaves. Mm-hmm. And we talk about regeneration uh, being a necessity to placing faith in Christ. And mm-hmm. we see that in the, in the New Testament and even sanctification, the Holy Spirit yeah. working in our lives so that we do believe and continue to believe. Um, could you talk about that in the Old Testament? What What did that look like for... Old, uh, Old yeah. Testament believers that's a great question. I think the Bible's a little scant on that. Um, I think that in the Old Testament we see the the ministry of the Holy Spirit being particular um, and and um, being, uh, being you know specific to a person that god is is, um, is working with at that time, maybe a leader that he's anointing like David or Saul or others. Um, but you don't see this sort of broad, universal pouring out of God's Spirit. But what you see is Old Testament prophecies from the prophets speaking um, about this day when the Spirit will be poured out, like in Joel 2 and other places. But then the New Testament, I think, does show us that the Spirit is very active in particular ways, like in 1 Peter um, chapter 1. Uh, we see where uh, Peter is saying that these Old Testament prophets... And Old Testament writers were um, were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First uh, Peter, maybe it's Second Peter chapter one, where he says that yeah, Second Peter chapter one verse twenty one: "For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." So let's make a couple systematic. I mean, let's make a couple categorical comments. And and let's tread lightly on this because because there's just not much about it in the Scriptures. That in the Old Testament, certainly the Holy Spirit is very active. In anything that's going on, in a a, a true person coming to faith, Moses, Abraham, whoever, the Holy Spirit's active in that. The whole triune God is active in that. But we just don't hear that fleshed out and explained very much. And then in the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit breathed out. And so, yeah, I think, I think you've hit on an important distinction there that the Holy Spirit was not poured out in full measure in the church and in the world like um, in the Old Testament like he is in the New Covenant. Yeah, good question. Anything, anybody else in the back over here? Hi. Uh, uh, in regards, uh, in the light of the, the last question, mm-hmm. um, with the Holy Spirit moving in the Old Testament, and uh, you spoke of the, uh, the shadow under Christ in which... Uh, people of the Old Testament lived, Is, Do you, in your opinion, do you think that people post-Christ uh, are capable of still, via the Holy Spirit, having that shadow under which they can find Christ, even though Christ might not be physically spoken to them? That's a great question. Um, I, yeah, I think that the scriptures that we read about the necessity of faith in Christ um, and the gospel— um, sort of wall us off from that? That's a really good question. Um, and I think that's sort of the logical conclusion of Romans chapter 1. Or that's the logical f- next question I would have of Romans 1 where, where, where Paul is saying, you know, the the creation has led you to sort of you should know that there's a God, right? And you'd think, okay, now maybe the Holy Spirit's going to kind of move them in. But he says, but they don't, like nobody does. Like all everybody suppresses the truth. Nobody's made that progression into the shadow that ultimately would come a, a, you know, into Christ. And so even post-Christ, um, yeah, I, 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 we just don't see any instances of, of it in the Bible. Um, we, see, we see salvation coming directly through personal faith in Christ. Great question, but I just don't think the Bible has any evidence of it. Yeah, good question. Anybody else? All right, well, let's keep going, um, and let's get into question number two. And this will be a little quicker and maybe spill over to the 7.30 um, time frame just a bit. So Debbie, Debbie from Peoria asks, Do people who die as infants go to heaven? Well, I think this question is a little less straightforward in the Bible. But let me just kind of throw my cards on the table up front and say that I think that there is pretty good biblical evidence that points us in the direction, even though it's not airtight, there's good biblical evidence that points us towards comfort and trust that those, all those who die as infants or who are mentally incapable um, do go to heaven. Uh, some very important people in church history, both past and present, believe this. Uh, I think this is probably what Calvin believed. Um, it's, it's not real clear, but it seems to be like he leaned that way. Uh, John Newton, uh, the great hymn writer of "Amazing Grace," great pastor and writer. Some guy named Charles Spurgeon. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not. In fact, Spurgeon went kind of—Spurgeon went a little too far on this. He used to like scorn people that were unsure about this. And he, I think he was just a little bit of like a, like a winsome bully. And so he like, he like would scorn other pastors that were just kind of hesitant about this, which I kind of like. B.B. Uh, Warfield, Charles Hodge, R.C. Sproul. Well, so Warfield, Hodge, all those guys have died. R.C. Sproul, current theologian, uh, super lots of respect for him. John MacArthur, lots of respect for him. Al Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, lots of respect for him. John Piper, lots of respect for him. These guys all believe... yeah, the Bible points us in the direction that we can trust God's mercy that infants who die in infancy do go to heaven. So let's look real quickly. Historically, unbiblical views would be, first would be, and these are wrong. So by unbiblical, I mean wrong. So these are wrong, okay? Universalism, and that would be the faulty view that infants are saved because everyone is eventually saved. Not true. Baptismal regeneration, meaning that baptized infants are saved. To some degree, this is what Catholics still believe, I think, to some degree, although they've backed away from some of these things with the Vatican II back in the late 60s. Um, and this is different from the Protestant view, like what Presbyterians, good Presbyterians, or other Reformed Um, Protestants that would believe in um, infant baptism, those like Presbyterians and other Reformed Protestant Christians do not believe that what they're doing in infant baptism is like transferring any saving grace, okay? So although we would disagree with that being what the Bible says about baptism they're not saying that a child is being saved when you baptize a child, unlike other people in church history have. So, so, they, so baptismal regeneration is false. And then Pelagianism, a heresy by a man named Pelagius back in the 300s, where he believed that people were not born like inherently sinful, that we were kind of born neutral or even good, and that we we're sort of shaped by our environment. So those would be false ways that anybody, especially infants, if they were to pass away, would be saved. So what are the biblical hints about infant salvation that I think can push us towards confidence in the mercy of God? Israel on the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Um, So what's happened is that Moses has led the people through the wilderness. Moses is about to die. He's not going to get to take the people into the promised land ultimately this young man named Joshua is going to be raised up and he's going to lead the people across the Jordan River into the promised land and Deuteronomy is a really long sermon where Moses is preaching to the people here on the edge of the promised land and in, I'm sorry Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 35 um, God says not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers Okay, so he's saying you've jacked it up in the desert. None of you guys are actually going to get to cross over. Skip down to verse 39 of Deuteronomy 1. And as far as your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. So clearly, in this particular historical incident, God is, is, is not holding these young Little ones, children of Israel, accountable, even though they, like every other human being, is born with a sin nature, and they do inherit this, 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 they do get to go into the promised land. So there's a hint that possibly God could have an extra mercy towards children that don't have a knowledge of their sin yet. We see this as David's expectation in Second Samuel chapter 12. You know the story. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and that resulted in a pregnancy, resulted in a child. And the prophet Nathan calls out David for his sin. The child is born, right? Then David tries to cover up a sin by murder. And then the child is born, and the child passes away in the first few days. And so then David, um, in Second Samuel 12, verse 23, says, But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him, bring him back again? I shall go to him but he will not return to me. So there's this hope David is saying, and I will go to him someday. I will, I will see this child again. And then we see Jesus' statements about little children, about how Jesus thought of little children. Matthew 18. Uh, let's start in verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one, such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. And then in Matthew 19, just one chapter over, verses 13 through 15, Jesus says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So clearly Jesus has this special love for, for children. And then we see Paul's logic of accountability due to knowledge. So go back to Romans chapter 1. Did you notice there the the, the logic that Paul seems to be building in verse uh, 20? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse because or for, although they knew God, They did not honor him as God. And so it seems that Paul is linking their sin of not acknowledging God, of now being idolaters with their knowledge of God. And many biblical commentators through the years have sort of linked this to this this accountability, this condition of accountability that brings with it this punishment. Now. That brings up a question. Does the Bible speak of an age of accountability? I think most of us probably grew up thinking that there's some age of accountability, whether that's 10 or 12 or 16 or 18. And the Bible doesn't really speak directly to that. I, I don't, there's no like verse we could say and point to, like, this is the age of accountability. I think at some point, clearly, from these verses, it's clear that people do become morally accountable for their actions, but we, we just don't know what that age is, and then finally, um, hints about the salvation of infants is just, and we could fill the page with verses about just the character of God. So, Psalm eighty-six, we just see this beautiful, um, this beautiful explanation of the goodness of God. Psalm eighty-six, verse five. Um, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. We could read many, many, many more verses about that. And so compiling all of this, this, these hints from the Old Testament that seem to indicate that little ones, even though they're guilty, even though they are not innocent, that God has special mercy on these children like he did these children of Israel on the edge of the Promised Land, like he did on this infant that died after a week through this sinful union between David and Bathsheba, like we see Jesus' heart towards children, it brings us to this, I think, this logical inference in the character of God that the Bible, under answer and implications there, the Bible seems to suggest that infants are saved. Charles Hodge, this um, Princeton theologian back um, 100 years ago or so, said the conduct and language of our Lord in reference to children are not to be regarded as matters of sentiment or simply expressive or kindly feeling. He evidently looked upon them as lambs of the flock for which as the good shepherd he laid down his life and of whom he said they shall never perish and no man could pluck them out of his hands. Of such he tells us is the kingdom of heaven as though heaven was in good measure composed of the souls of redeemed infants. So again... This argument is not, admittedly, it's not airtight. And the Bible really is is, is scant with, with verses that touch on this. But I think these are helpful uh, and certainly comforting to me uh, passages that point us in the direction that I think we can say, uh, still being biblically responsible, that it seems to be the character of God that all infants who die in infancy... And I think we would, again, include mentally incapable people um, are, part of God's, are part of God's elect. So a couple implications about that. One in particular is that we don't know about the age, this age of accountability. I mean, who knows what that is? I mean, it's not like, it may not necessarily be the same for every person. Every person has different you know, spiritual and mental capacities. And so parents and churches should be diligent to evangelize their children from the earliest age. Children are not born Christians. People are reborn as Christians. And so we should be diligent to evangelize our children, you know, and to, to preach the gospel to them. Not not, you know, moralism or do-goodism, but to bring children, Lord willing. And it's the responsibility of parents in the church, primarily parents, to to teach children the gospel so that in an early age a child might turn away from themselves and trust in Christ. Any questions on that before we conclude? Any questions on children or back to the first question about any at all? Going once, going twice. All right, well, here's a challenge for us. I'm going to pray in a second, um, and let's pray for, I'm going to encourage you to pray for us as a church that um, what we've done tonight wouldn't just be an academic exercise, you know? Oh, yeah, we've got some theological compartment that says this about people, that we would be people that care desperately. So pray for us as a church. Pray for yourself that you'd be better equipped to share the gospel with a person that doesn't know Jesus. And then pray that God might bring somebody in our path that we can share the gospel with. And if you don't feel equipped to share the gospel, maybe you don't know the gospel. Let's not just assume that because you're at church on a Wednesday night in the deep south that you know the gospel. Maybe tonight you need to repent of your sin and trust in Christ. Maybe even as we've been speaking this evening, you've become aware of the fact that you're not trusting in yourself. You're trusting in maybe culture or your own goodness. And you know that tonight you need to turn away from trusting in yourself and you need to trust in Christ. As we pray and as we pray for God to convict us and to burden us for the cause of missions to our neighbors and the nations, maybe you might turn trust in Christ. And so if you. If you need to talk more about that, I'd be glad to stick around. Um, and if you are a Christian that wants to know how to just explain the gospel better, get with one of the pastors or a person that you know to be capable of that and take them to lunch and talk to them and ask them for encouragement and help along those lines. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for these, these friends. Uh, Lord, Settings like this can feel so clinical. And I pray that you would uh, help us to feel the weight of souls. And that you would put in us the urgency that you put in the Apostle Paul when he wrote Romans 10. How are they here? I pray that this church would be radically committed to the cause of global missions. That Jeremy and Samantha Orlich would be the first of a wave of people from this church who are willing to set their lives on hold and to go to the uttermost parts of the earth because the ignorant person on the island is not a case study, it's a real person. And if they die outside of you, having never heard of Jesus, they will perish forever. And so I pray that you would make this a church that is radically committed to sending, to going, to praying, to preaching, to the nations and to our neighbors. And if there's anyone in this room tonight, Lord, it would be such a, a shame if we talked about these monumental realities of eternity and somebody were to leave this room her, having wrestled with this question himself. So, Lord, if there's a person in this room who's never trusted in Christ, Would you give them the courage to talk to a person that they know to be a Christian about the state of their soul? Nothing could be more important. Go with us now, Lord. Go with us and prepare us as a church to have a deeper and sustaining burden for souls. Help us share the gospel more effectively. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.